John chapter 7. And in your books, we're on lesson number 85. It's called On the Road to Rejection. All right, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father God, we love you, we thank you, we praise your name for being a God of love, concern, compassion, justice, holiness, um, that you revealed us yourself to us through your word. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming to die for us, that you are the good shepherd who came to save and to seek that which was lost, and you kept your face set like flint toward the cross. Nothing would deter you, nothing would keep you from accomplishing your mission, not even the rejection of your own family, the misunderstanding of your own brothers as to who you were, and even though others misunderstood and rejected you and persecuted you and killed you, you still had your face set toward that cross on Calvary, and you did all of that because of us, so that we could be freed from the sin barrier that kept us from your Father in heaven. Lord Jesus, we love you, we thank you, we praise you for the Holy Spirit, our resident teacher. We pray, Lord, that he would have his will and way in every heart here this morning, that he would keep us focused on your word, not in everything else in our lives, and that you would help your servant to um, speak clearly and quickly and to um, just have my mind focus on lifting up the Lord Jesus Christ in whose name we do pray. Amen. We said last week that Jesus had come to the near end of his Galilean ministry. He was on his way out of Galilee for the last time and was on his way slowly but surely to Jerusalem in order to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. He would not return again to Galilee, his own hometown province. He was on what? The road to rejection. He was on the road to the cross. Because he was on his way to all that awaited him down in the southern province of Judea. And, of course, the eventual death that he would suffer at the hands of the uh, religious rulers there in Israel. But the real reason he was on his way to the cross in Jerusalem was because it was his father's will that he die as the propitiation or the satisfaction for the sins of the world. He had been born to die, right? He was born to die. He came from heaven above to shed his own sinless blood for the remission of sins. He had come to seek and to save that which was lost. And I don't know about you, but I think I do. I am certainly glad he did because I was as lost as a goose. And so I am glad that I have a good shepherd who came and sought me out. Apparently, after Jesus left Capernaum of Galilee and was headed south, that he had encountered along the way the three men who we discussed in last week's lesson. Also, en route from Capernaum to Jerusalem, he and his men, if you look at a map at the end of your Bibles, you would see that on your way from Capernaum down to Jerusalem, you would have to pass somewhere near his hometown of Nazareth. And I'm just speculating about this, but it may likely have been in the vicinity of Nazareth. Now, I don't think he went into Nazareth because he'd already given them two opportunities to accept him, and they rejected him on both accounts. But I think somewhere in the vicinity of Nazareth, his family heard that he was nearby, and they came to seek him. To see him, actually, not to seek him. I wish they had come to seek him. (laughs) They came to see him. And we have the discussion that we're going to be looking at in the first few verses of John chapter 7. Obviously, as we will see, Jesus was taking his time leaving Galilee. And his brothers did not know, we'll see this as we look at the scripture, that his brothers, his his half-brothers, did not know that his plan was to depart from Galilee for good. They assumed he was just on his way south to Jerusalem to attend the Feast of Tabernacles. But the brothers had their own agenda, and they had their own time schedule for Jesus, although it was all figured without belief in him. How do I know that? Because I can look at John 7, 5. If you want to look there, I'll be reading that in just a minute. But all of this that they had planned for their brother was figured without having genuine belief in who he was. So it's very sad to see that the Lord's road to uh, to rejection 
at least at this turning point in his life, with less than six months now until his death, began with his own family. His road to rejection, once he had determined he was leaving Galilee on his way to Jerusalem, began with his own family. That's sad when your own family rejects you, isn't it? I won't ask for a show of hands, but I'm sure some of you have had your own family members reject you because of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, his own family rejected him. And I think it's interesting. We would not see this if we weren't studying the Lord's life chronologically. If we were only going through the book of Luke, we wouldn't see this. If we were only going through the book of John, we wouldn't see this. But it is interesting that this follows on the heels of Luke 9 and the barriers to commitment. Remember the last barrier was not um, allowing past relationships. To interfere with, you know, what you once you've put your hands on the plow, you don't look back. And here, his own brothers reject him, but he's got his face set toward Jerusalem, and not even his past relationships are going to hinder him from accomplishing his goal. And this is what we're going to discuss in the first part of our study this morning called Spurned by His Siblings. And then in the second half of this lesson, which comes from Luke, we'll jump over to Luke 9, verses 51 to 56. We're going to see that he was also spurned by the Samaritans. So spurned by his siblings and spurned by the Samaritans as he passed through Samaria on his way down to Jerusalem. So let's begin by looking at John 7, verses 1 to 10, spurned by his siblings. It says, After these things Jesus walked in Galilee, For he would not walk in Jewry, which is speaking of Judah, the southern province where the Jews, the religious rulers, mostly hung out. So sometimes they called it Jewry. He would not walk in Jewry because the Jews sought to kill him. All the way back since the time the paralytic was lowered through the roof of uh, Peter's house and um, he said, your sins are forgiven. And if you go back to John chapter 5, when he healed the man at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath day, the Jews have had their minds set that they want to destroy him. They want to kill him. And he knew that. It says in verse 2, Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brethren, us is speaking of his half-brothers, therefore said unto him, Depart hence and go into Judea. Notice who's giving the commands. They're commanding him what to do. Depart hence and go into Judea. What did it just said in verse 1? For he would not walk in Jerusalem because the Jews sought to kill him. And now they're saying depart and go into Judea. That's kind of bad. They don't know what's going on, do they? All right, anyway. That thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. He's talking about his disciples that he left down in Judea last time he was there. Notice that they say that they may also see the works that thou doest. It's a shame they didn't say that that they may hear the words that thou sayest. That would have been a lot better. They were more impressed with his works than his words. And yet faith comes by hearing, not by seeing the word of God. All right, verse 4, For there is no man that doeth anything in secret. This is still the brothers talking. And he himself seeketh to be known openly. If, if, if thou do these things, show thyself to the world. For neither did his brethren believe in him. That's a comment made by John. And it says in verse 6, the Lord's response. Then Jesus said unto them, his brothers, My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth, because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. Now here's he giving them a command. Go ye up unto this feast. And why do they say up, by the way, even though we know Jerusalem is south from where they were? Jerusalem, it's on a hill, and you can see it for miles coming into it. because it's, So anybody going to Jerusalem, no matter what direction they're coming from, has to go up to Jerusalem. So he says, uh, Go ye up unto this feast. I go not up yet unto this feast, for my time is not yet full come. When he had said these words unto them, he abode still in Galilee. But when his brethren were, were gone up, then, also, then he also went, uh, then went he also up unto the feast, not openly, 
but as it were in secret. All right, if you look back at verse 1, it says, After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee. What things is John talking about? After what things? Well, if you look ahead at the previous things in John's gospel, he's talking about the bread of life sermon. That's what occurred in John chapter 6. We spent four weeks in the bread of life sermon. And after the bread of life sermon, remember, his many of his former disciples turned from him and walked no more with him. That was in John 6, 66. And then we saw in the last verses of John 6, the determination of the 12 apostles to stay with him. They said, to whom shall we go? You alone, you know, have the words of eternal life. Well, John, you see, skipped everything that we have been studying in our chronological study of the Lord's life since the Bread of Life sermon. He goes from the Bread of Life sermon to what we're just reading. He skipped everything else that the three synoptic writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have been covering regarding everything that went on in Galilee between John chapter 6 and John chapter 7. So see, if you were just studying the Gospel of John, do you know what you would have missed? Let me tell you what you would have missed. Here's what you would have missed. You would have missed the Jews' accusation of Jesus' disciples for not having washed their hands before they ate, and his subsequent sermon on on true defilement, Remember that sermon? Do you remember that? This was earlier this year. This is kind of a review. Maybe you can be thinking about some of these things you learned for your sharing day. We would have missed that. You know, he says, it's not what you put into your mouth. It's what, what's already in you, in your heart. And we talked about the vanity of traditions, such as the Corban tradition, which was awful disrespect towards one's parents. We would have also missed his journey, the Lord's journey, up into the area of Tyre and Sidon. And remember his encounter with the Syrophoenician woman up there? And uh, she had great faith. She was the only woman recorded in the scriptures who was said to have great faith. She pleaded with the Lord Jesus on the behalf of her demonically possessed daughter. That was a special lesson. Some of you might want to share about that. We also um, would have missed his journey into the area of the ten cities of Decapolis, where he healed a deaf man who also had a speech impediment. That was his first spitting miracle. How can you forget that? His first spitting miracle, where he also performed the miracle of the feeding of the 4,000. And what were they? Jews or Gentiles? Gentiles, exactly. He'd already fed 5,000 Jews, and then he had a miracle feeding 4,000 Gentiles to show that he is the bread of life for the entire world, Jew and Gentile. We would have missed his trip across the Sea of Galilee to Magdala, where the Pharisees and Sadducees tempted him by asking him for a sign. And he condemned them, you know, how they could read the signs of the weather, but they could not read the signs of the times. And then he went on to predict his own resurrection. He said, the only sign you'll receive is the sign of Jonas. And then we would have missed the Lord's only miracle performed in stages. Who remembers what that miracle was? Yes, the healing of the blind man outside of the city of Bethsaida. And we would have missed his journey with his men up up into um, Caesarea Philippi, where he gave them the big exam question. He asked them, whom say ye that I am? Which they passed with flying colors, Peter was their spokesman, when they said, or he said, um, this rock statement of faith, he said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. We also would have missed the Lord's first time mention of the church, and that was in Matthew chapter 16, and the name of that lesson was Upon This Rock. So too would we have missed the Lord's prediction in very clear, non-symbolic language, first time he did, he did it clearly, he predicted his own upcoming death and his resurrection and his ascension, um, his second coming. He predicted his second coming. 
And this was all in Matthew 16. And remember when he spoke about his death, that was sort of all that Peter focused on. And he said, oh, Lord, never, you know, we'll never let this happen. And, of course, he then received the Lord's very strict rebuke when he said, get thee behind me, Satan. Also, we would have missed um, the account of the transfiguration. Some of you may want to share what that lesson meant to you, the transfiguration. I remember that was the last lesson in our Life of Christ 3 book, the metamorphosis of the Messiah. And then following the glorious transfiguration was the lesson on moving mountains in the valley, where we learned that the nine left behind... (laughs) I always think of the Left Behind series, but the nine Left Behind disciples who had not been privileged to see the transfiguration had failed to cast out a demon from a boy whose father had brought him to them for deliverance. We had another occasion then after that of the religious rulers trying to find fault by attacking Peter and asking Peter if his master was not going to pay the temple tribute money. And that was followed, of course, by the miracle of catching the fish with the exact coin, two drachmas, for the tax money in, in its mouth. That fish had the exact amount in his mouth. And then, of course, we learned of the disciples' argument among themselves over what? Over greatness. Who among them was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Which was followed by the Lord's sermon on being children of God in Matthew 18, which took us five weeks to cover. We uh, learned all that he had to say. Well, not all that he had to say, but we learned what he did say about keeping the unity of peace in the family of God. We learned a lot about humility and not causing offenses to the Lord's little ones. We talked about the parable of the lost sheep. We talked about church discipline, forgiveness, and the parable of the wicked servant. And then also we would have missed his encounter with three would-be disciples and our lesson on true commitment, true discipleship, which we looked at last week. So that's what you would have missed if you just study the book of John. So do you understand a little bit why it takes us? It's going to take us about eight or nine years to get through the life of Christ. And studying John would be easy. We could just move along. Well, it wouldn't be easy. I would make it difficult. I assure you I would probably make it difficult. Anyway, there was a lot included in John's simple statement of 7-1 when he said, After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee. He had all that I just told you about in those simple words. Walked, he walked in Galilee. And then he went on to to make the comment why the Lord wasn't walking in Judea at this time, these past months that we've been studying, because he would not walk in Jewry because he knew the Jews sought to kill him. And it wasn't yet his time, was it? It wasn't yet his time to go to the cross. It had been a long time since Jesus had presented himself in Jewry, down in Judea, where the the, the Jews sought to kill him. And the, the word sought is given in the continuous sense. In the Greek, so it means, or the continuous tense, that they kept on seeking to kill him. They're always trying to, while they're down there and he's away, they're plotting and planning how they're going to get rid of him. And, of course, you know, he didn't stay away from Judea out of fear of the Jews. He wasn't up there in Galilee because he feared them. He did so because it was not yet his hour to die. He was scheduled from eternity past to be the Passover lamb and to die on what day? Exactly, on the day of the Feast of Passover. If you're the Passover lamb, you die on all of the Lord's special events in his life took place on one of Israel's feast days, which is so fascinating. Even the year and the day was set in eternity past and actually even prophesied in the word of God. In Daniel chapter 9, if you ever do a study... um, on Daniel chapter 9, it is the most fantastic prophecy in all of the word of God, the 70 weeks prophecy. And you, they could have figured to the very day that he would officially present himself to Israel as their Messiah, to the very day. And then they would know that it would be that Passover that he would die. Of course, you know, if they accepted him, things would have been different, but it was all in God's plan that they would not accept him. But anyhow, it wasn't his hour. He still had a lot to teach his men. We still have five more years in the life of Christ. (laughs) He had a lot yet to teach him, even though he's only like five to six months away 
from his death, he had a lot to teach them to prepare them for the task that would be theirs, you know, once uh, after his, his exodus. And he had also um, kept himself from the place of greatest conflict and danger so that he might continue to minister to those who truly were seeking him, such as the Syrophoenician woman and such as the demoniac boy's father, and such as the 4,000 Gentiles over in Decapolis. But now, as John 7, 2 says, the Feast of Tabernacles was at hand, and Jesus was going to attend that feast down in Jerusalem of Judea. So his days in, the, in his Galilean ministry are at an end. The Feast of Tabernacles is also called, it has many names, it's also called the Feast of Booths, it's called the Feast of Sukkot, S-U-K-K-O-T, which in Hebrew is just the word for booths. It's, and that's in the, in the scripture in 1 Kings 8 too, by the way. It's called the Feast of Ingathering in Exodus, and it's even called the Feast of Harvest. It is the final, it is the, the seventh, the, the final of the seven feasts of Israel. There's seven feasts in Israel, celebrated by Israel. Now, there's other feasts, but they're non-biblical, such as the Feast of Lights. That's based on history. But the seven biblical feasts, um, they end with the Feast of, of Booths. And it's really a picture in type of the Millennial Kingdom. It's kind of a Thanksgiving festival. It was a week-long celebration at the end of the fall harvest. It was the most joyous of all the Jewish feasts. The Lord God was praised in both song and dance for all of his marvelous mercies, you know, in his earthly provisions. It was a, actually, it was a commemoration of the time when God had preserved Israel after he had delivered her from her bondage in Egypt. All of this is a picture of what's going to be going on in the millennial kingdom. You know, we've been delivered from our bondage to this old world. She, remember Israel, of course, had lived for 40 years in the wilderness, and she lived in booths, which she made from branches of uh, citron, palm, myrtle, and willow trees. You can read about all that in Leviticus 23. So for the seven days of the feast, the Feast of uh, Tabernacles, people flocked in great numbers to Jerusalem, and they built themselves their own uh, temporary booths or shelters all around the walls of the city. Wouldn't that be fun? Wouldn't that be fun if we had a feast like that, that we all prepared all year to go to? We all had our little makeshift tents, you know, and we were, it'd just be such, and they really had a good time. They all looked forward to it. It was the, and won't we have a wonderful time in the millennial kingdom for a thousand years? Oh, amen. Anyway, this is one of the three annual feasts that required Jewish males to attend. They were to attend this. You know, other feasts they didn't have to, but this they did have to. Males males had to attend. And the others were the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of Booths. I say unleavened bread, but unleavened bread and Passover and the, the, the uh, Feast of First Fruits all came together. Bing, bing, bing. So they went down there for the unleavened bread, but they stayed for the Passover and they stayed for the uh, first, first fruits. So they went, Jewish males had to go three times a year. And there is going to be, oh, I can't wait till you come back in the fall. There is going to be so much significance in everything the Lord says and everything he does during this Feast of Tabernacles week. We'll be looking. That'll give you a lot to look forward to, I hope, when you come. You could take a sneak preview and read the lessons ahead of time. And by the way, if you want something to study during the summer, please let us know now so we can begin to prepare your cassette tapes or your um, CDs. Or if you want books, of course, they're all out there. On the, but I do, I do encourage every one of you to stay in the Word of God this summer. All right, anyway, it was this feast that the Lord's brothers saw as an opportunity for Jesus to promote himself. And that's what they basically say in verses 3 and 4. Now, Jesus, we do know from not only this passage, but also from Matthew 13, 55 and 56. If you want to look over there, Matthew 13, 55 and 56, Jesus had four half-brothers. We even know their names. Their names were James, 
and Joseph, which is Joseph. So one of the brothers was named for his father. Remember Joseph, the carpenter. James, Joseph, or Joseph, Simon, and Judas, which is another name for Jude. Two of those brothers wrote New Testament epistles. You know that? James, his half-brother, wrote the book of James, which follows the book of Hebrews, and James is the most practical book where the rubber meets the road that we have probably in all the Word of God. And Jude wrote the, the, uh, the book right before, the one-chapter book on apostasy right before the book of Revelation. So even though we're looking at these brothers unsaved here, we know what happens. They got saved. We're told that in Acts that his brothers did eventually come to faith in their older brother, half-brother, Jesus Christ. But here they're not in belief. What does this tell us? If, oh, and we also know he had at least two sisters, because the word for sisters is given in the plural. So he had at least two sisters, half-sisters. What does this tell us about the doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary? False. If you believe the word of God, she went on to have a number of other children. She did not stay a perpetual virgin as Roman Catholicism teaches. That's false doctrine. Now, the last time we read in the gospel accounts about the Lord's half-brothers, they had an attitude of concern and an attitude of embarrassment about their older brother, Jesus. His claims to being the son of God, can you imagine if you were in there sandals and you had an older brother and he was perfect <laughs> I mean perfect <laughs> and then he grows up and he goes around telling everybody he's the son of God uh, this embarrassed them no end and don't you know there had to be a little jealousy involved in all this too uh, but the last time we saw them they were embarrassed and so uh, this room the rumor of his madness from their friends and neighbors got back to them. You know, your brother is beside himself, they said, which means, you know, un poco loco in la cabeza. He's a little bit crazy in the head. And so at, uh, this was over in Mark, I think it was Mark 3.21. His brothers came to get him. And they came with Mary, their mother, his mother also. And they came a good distance to try to bring him home with them. And, of course, he did not go, but rather when he was told that they were outside seeking him, remember what he said? <laughs> who is my, who is my mother or my brethren? And then he looked at his own disciples and he said, whosoever shall do the will of my father, of God, the same is my brother and my sister. And all of this is an important thing to remember about his brothers as we look at their suggestion to him in this passage in John 7. They came to him in almost an insolent and certainly a presumptuous manner, essentially telling him what to do. Well, they, they did. They told him what to do. And they said if he was the Messiah, as he was claiming, then according to their estimation of things, and of course they didn't believe that he was the Messiah, as we know from verse 5. But according to their view, he certainly should not be wasting his uh, time, so much of his time up there in, in the backwoods of Galilee. He needed to go where it really mattered. He needed to present himself down in Jerusalem, especially during the well-attended Feast of Tabernacles when everyone was in a joyous mood. It was celebration time. That's the time to go, Jesus. Their words also seem to tell us that they were saying he was failing to help and strengthen his disciples who he did leave down there. Now, we know he had disciples left down there, such as Mary and Martha and Lazarus and others who, who lived down in Judea. So his brothers are telling him that he didn't need to be spending all of his efforts, all of his time with peasants and nobodies. Go to the capital where the people who really matter live. And build yourself a following down there, Jesus. Step center stage and let the real judges of these kind of matters see who you, or see what you can do, not hear what you say, but see what you can do, and let them determine matters. If you are doing all these miracles by the power of God, and not by the power of Beelzebub, then get the ball rolling. And now is a great time to do it. 
you know, you, you, you need the publicity. We're going to be your PR man, men. If you really are who you say, then let's get things going here. And maybe there's something of hoping that he would, and they would ride in on his coattails. I don't know. Now, some people have, have suggested, based on the brothers' previous embarrassment over Jesus, you know, think of what they felt when all their fellow hometown people, all the other citizens of Nazareth, wanted to kill him, wanted to push him off a cliff. Uh, so some people think that based on their previous embarrassment that the brothers here in John chapter 7 were merely mocking their older brother. They say that the brothers must not have known about the great hatred of the religious rulers for Jesus because they certainly would not tell him to go there in order for his life to be in jeopardy. And I can't believe that. I don't think they wanted him to go there so he would be killed. I don't think they hated him. I think they were jealous of him. But uh, so these, some have suggested that this this whole scene was merely one of mockery and taunting, and unbelief that they were taunting him, not thinking it likely that he would go to Jerusalem and present himself there as Messiah. Surely he had enough sense to know that he couldn't get away with all his claims down in Judea as he had been doing up in Galilee. Well, that's the suggestion of some. Others have suggested that they, the brothers didn't believe who Jesus claimed was who he claimed to be, but hoped, as I said a little while ago, that they hoped that he was. And if he went to Jerusalem, the authorities down there would be able to determine once and for all if, if he was the Messiah. Perhaps they saw their mother's own deep trust and hope and faith in him. And they wanted to believe if nothing else, for her sake. They surely would have known by this point that he could indeed perform some absolutely amazing miracles. Don't you know that they had seen him? I mean, they they would have had, as his half-brothers, enough interest to have gone and actually seen him perform some miracles, even though he didn't perform any in Nazareth because of their unbelief there, but I'm sure they knew he could. Well, they say, you know, go perform some of your works down there. But, unfortunately, they're more interested in his works than his words. But don't you think about this. If you were them, wouldn't you question your mother? With a little bit of questioning all those years of Mary, surely they could have found out the circumstances regarding their older brother's birth. That he really was born, just as Micah 5.2 said, in Bethlehem, Ephrata. That, you know, all of them did descend through the right line back to King David on both sides of the family. They could have, with a little investigation, and they could, they could have figured all these things out. Um, and perhaps they did. But it's still hard to think your own brother could be God. That's, that's, that's a lot. So we're you know, not ones to condemn where they are. But I can't tell you where their hearts were in the matter. I would say that, that they didn't hate him. Um, and didn't want him to die. Um, I do know where their minds were. Their minds were not in harmony with heaven. They were in unbelief, and I know that because the Word of God tells us. They had lived all their lives up until the last three years in the same home and in the same town with the same parents, except for after Joseph died. Um, They had lived with the Son of God. And yet they did not know him. Oh, my, what does this tell us about the barrier of familiarity? How many young people grow up in church, you know, with Christian parents and hearing the word of God? Every time Jesus opened his mouth, they heard the word of God. And yet they didn't believe. That's that's a real serious danger, is the danger of familiarity isn't it? We need to really, don't ever just assume that because your children were raised in the church that they're Christians. We have to pray for them, pray for them, pray for them until that faith is truly their own. But his brothers, uh, the only thing that they could say was that if he was the Messiah, he had the wrong way of going about things. He had the wrong way of going about claiming his kingdom. They had a better way. 
They kind of remind me of Peter. <laughs> they had a better way. They, they demonstrated how spiritually blind they were to his deity by telling him what he ought to do. They were responding from minds of unbelief. They were thinking like men of the world when they said, Show thyself unto the world. The Lord's brothers thought in terms of stardom and publicity and self-advertising. They were caught up in the pride of life syndrome rather than the humility, the poverty of spirit virtues that Jesus had exemplified before them, we know, all of his life. And he had been teaching these things as mandatory for and characteristics of the um, citizens of the kingdom. And I'm sure they'd heard those things. I'm sure they had gone and heard him teach. This was not really different from, when we think about it, not really different from the thinking of the Lord's original 12 disciples who became his apostles. They were also certainly having very similar problems, weren't they? I mean, they had just been fighting among themselves over greatness. The difference, however, between the twelve at this point in time and the Lord's four brothers is that the twelve had come to believe that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, and the half-brothers had not. Their barrier was uh, most likely that of familiarity and also probably the barrier of overcoming sibling rivalry and jealousies. Remember what Joseph had to go through? He was hated by his brothers, wasn't he? His own flesh and blood brothers because he was the favorite of the father. And he is a, he's the most perfect type of Christ that we have in the Bible. And I am sure that Jesus' brothers had a bit of a jealousy problem with their perfect over, older brother, who was indeed the favorite of the father. Therefore, the road to rejection, the Lord's final journey to Jerusalem, began with the spurning, unbelieving, commanding words of those raised side by side with him in the same home. Behind their words, show thyself to the world, we can hear the same temptation of who? Satan in the wilderness, remember? In the wilderness, because it wasn't much different than when Satan said, in effect, you know, do something spectacular, Jesus. Go to the pinnacle of the temple there in Jerusalem and jump down and let the angels kill you. I mean, kill you. <laughs> Catch you. <laughs> the angels would never kill you. Nobody can. Well, yeah, we killed him. All right. He's, uh, then everyone will recognize you and crown you king. That's kind of the thinking of the brothers. And uh, this was Satan's tactic tactic they would satan would have loved for jesus to listen to his brothers and to go to jerusalem when everybody was there for the feast of tabernacles and do something spectacular like jump off the temple or put 16 rainbows in the sky and spell the name jesus you know something like that and then everybody would crown him king and he wouldn't have to go where to the cross the Lord's brothers did not submit to Jesus because they did not know who he was. They were yet in unbelief, although the good news is they did change drastically after his resurrection. That final sign of Jonas, and they saw him in person, resurrected from the dead. You want to see change? Read the book of James. Read the book of Jude. You'll see transformed lives like unbelievable. And when you read those books, I read through them the other night. I thought, wow, that is incredible. It is just incredible. And you can tell, too, that those guys were saturated in the word. They were raised in a godly home. But the change in them, and they were so humble, they wouldn't even say that they were the half-brothers of Jesus. Didn't even make that claim in either one of those two epistles. Anyway, gives me goosebumps. It's uh, very interesting to find that this original alienation of the Lord from his own brothers, his own brother's alienation of, of him, was predicted in the Old Testament scriptures. Did you know that? All this was predicted, not only through the type of Joseph and other ways, but the Lord himself had predicted his own alienation from his flesh and blood brothers back in Psalm 69. Go back there to Psalm 69 and look at verse 8. Jesus was speaking. Everybody knows Psalm 69, Jews agree, is a messianic psalm. 
God, Jesus, is speaking through his servant David. Psalm 69, 8, you have to see this. And he says, I am become a stranger unto my brethren and an alien unto my mother's children. Wow. Do you notice that this verse does not say my father's children? Do you know what would have happened if it had said my father's children? Everybody could say Jesus was not born of God the Holy Spirit because he would be claiming Joseph as his father. But no, it says I've become an alien unto my mother's children. And they were his half-brothers who we just talked about. The Lord's brothers did not share the same father with him. His father was God. Their father was Joseph the carpenter. So not only was this messianic prophecy saying that Christ would be unknown, that he would be a stranger to his own brethren, which could speak of the Jewish people. He was a stranger to the Jews, his own people, but he would also specifically be an alien to his own mother's children. You know what they thought of him? He must be from Mars. He was really strange. He was different. He was like an alien. They knew he was different. He was so different, he was like E.T. I mean, he was like, uh, that's a terrible uh, comparison, but he was, he was an alien to them. They really wondered about him, but kind of just concluded, along with all their friends and neighbors, that he was beside himself he was out of his mind and yet no one ever spake like him and this again as i remind you is the great danger in the barrier of familiarity it's a hard word to say Uh, i need to follow uh, skip some things or we won't get through this lesson i can see all right so the lord responded to his half-brothers by telling them my time is not yet come but your time is always ready Jesus did not come to show himself to the world. That's what they wanted, right? Show yourself to the world. He did not come to show himself to the world at the time of his first coming. What did he come to do? He came to save and to seek that which was lost, to call them out of the world. But you know what? He is going to show himself to the whole world at the time of his second coming. Oh, yes, then every eye will see him. But the first coming was the time of his humiliation. It's a good thing the Lord didn't listen to his brothers or none of them would have ever been saved by his being covered with his shed sinless perfect blood and neither would you and I. I'm so glad he didn't listen to his brothers, Joseph and Simon and Jude and James. His face was set. You know, he'd put his hand to the plow and he was not going to turn back. Since it was not his time to depart this world, he had to exercise caution. But his brothers wouldn't understand this because Jesus told them their time was always ready. They could go to the feast any time they pleased. They could go at the beginning. They could go before the feast started, which is what most people did. They went a few days ahead so they could set up their booth and everything. They could go at the beginning of the feast week. They could go in the middle of the feast week. They could go at the end of the feast week. Who would care? about Jesus' half-brothers when they showed up. But it was going to matter when Jesus showed up because he was on a divine timetable. And we'll see as we get into this, if he showed up too early, it would have been a problem because the people would have just gathered around him. He was the talk of the town anyway. They were all saying, do you think he'll come? Do you think he'll come? Do you think he'll show up? They didn't understand that the Jews hated him so much they were waiting to spring on him. So if they had made too much of a hubbub about him, they would have gotten him. But he waited till the middle of the feast to go when things had settled down and all the people began to understand how much the religious rulers really did hate him. So there's a reason. You know, he always has a purpose for everything he does. But uh, his brothers, it didn't matter when they went. He said, Jesus went on and said, the world could not hate them because they were in fellowship with it. It did hate him. Why? Because he exposed their evil. He is the light of the world, and he exposes men's evil. So the world naturally hates him, still to this day, hates him, hates him very much. Just turn on the news and listen. The world hates him, but um, the world didn't hate them because they were thinking right along in terms with the world when they said, show thyself to the world. So rather than obeying his brother's command to go, they obeyed 
they obeyed his command to go, and they, they went up to the feast. But he hung around and didn't go. And I am skipping an awful lot, but after they left, it says a little while, and he, it says he abode still in Galilee, but when his brothers were gone up, then went he also up to the feast. Up to the feast, but really down, because on his way down, now he's going to go, he's going to set it so he arrives just exactly in the middle of the feast week, But on his way, again, if you look at a map, maybe he was near Nazareth when this scene happened and he was spurned by his siblings, but on his way down to the feast, he would go through Samaria. Now, most Jews would not go through Samaria because they hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans were half-breeds. If you weren't with us when we studied John chapter 4, you can go back and review about the Samaritans. I don't have enough time to get into the history, but there was great animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. But Jesus was no respecter of persons. He never went the long way around through Perea down to Judea from Galilee. He always cut through Samaria because he had come to be the savior of the whole world. Remember the last time we saw him cutting through Samaria, it said he must needs go through Samaria. Why? Because he had a divine appointment with a very promiscuous woman at Jacob's well. Faith sometimes shows up in the most unlikely places, doesn't it? We've talked about this before. Wouldn't you think that faith would show up in the Lord's own brothers? who had watched him for 30 years be perfect. But no, it shows up in a woman who'd had five husbands and she was living with the sixth man. She met Jesus, the seventh man in her life, got so excited, left her water pot, ran back into her village and uh, led everybody out to to meet Jesus for themselves and they got they got saved the whole village got saved the village of Sychar Sychar which means purchased he purchased them just like he purchased you and I and and the whole town of Samaritans got saved had a wonderful reception there but now this time things are a little different this time as he passes through Samarit- Samaria well, I'm jumping the gun. Let me go back here a minute. Um, I haven't even read the passage, have I? I skipped that. Let's read the passage. You have to go over to Luke 9. Luke 9. I probably should have made this two lessons, <laughs> like everything else. <laughs> Let's look at Luke 9. What verses? 51. Start at verse 51. And it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. We talked about that verse last week. And here now he's in Samaria and sent messengers before his face and they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. Now this would not have been the village of Sychar because they would have gladly received him. But this is a different village. We don't know which village. Verse 53, And they, the Samaritans of this village, did not receive him, because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elias did? Nice, compassionate guys. Can you imagine women, children, the whole town, old people burned up to a crisp? But he, Jesus, turned and rebuked them and said, Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are. Whose manner of spirit were they talking? Satan's, not God's. And then he says, For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Well, on the second and last recorded journey of Jesus through Samaria, the Lord sent some messengers ahead to um, a particular village to request that his men would like to stay there for the night. You know, they'd like to have some food and lodging. This would be like calling ahead to get a reservation at the Red Roof, you know, so he wants to make sure they have permission to spend the night. However, the response of these Samaritans was in the negative. Why was it in the negative? Because they, they saw that his face was set to go where? to Jerusalem, not to where they worshipped, which was at Mount Gerizim. If you don't know the history on that, I think it's in the book, so read about that. 
It's interesting if you compare Luke 9, 51, look at verse 51, and compare it with verse 53. Verse 51 says that Jesus' face was set toward Jerusalem, where he would be what? Received up. While verse 53, look at it, says that because his face was set for, toward Jerusalem, he was not received. Interesting comparison. What a difference this demonstrates between the ways of God and the ways of unsaved men. He was spurned by his own siblings because he would not go to Jerusalem in their manner. And he was spurned by the Samaritans for going to Jerusalem. Uh, and not to their mountain, not their way of doing things. See, everyone was trying to put their ways and their thoughts above his, weren't they? Well, when the two sons of thunder, weren't they rightly named by Jesus? I think, I think they were going for another title, the sons of lightning here, <laughs> in addition to thunder. Uh, when they heard about this, that these Samaritans wouldn't let Jesus. Now, it's good. They had a zeal for the Lord in that they were upset when he was dishonored. That part of it was good. There is at least something to commend. Another thing that you can commend about James and John here is that they really thought that through Jesus' power they could call lightning down from heaven. They knew who he was. They'd seen him still the storm, calm the wind, the waves, the whole thing. They knew he could call lightning through them from heaven, just as Elijah had done back in 2 Kings 1, if you want to read about that, when... um, God sent lightning through Elijah to consume men sent by King Ahaziah. But that's about all we can commend about this situation. Um, Their thunder roared. These sons of thunder, their thunder roared when they went to Jesus in what they thought was righteous indignation and said, you know, let's just consume, let's burn up, let's crispify that whole town, Jesus. (laughs) But, you know, they were trying to even make this attitude scriptural by comparing it with what Elijah had done. But it's two completely different situations there, and I don't have time to get in all of that either. But James and John, remember now, they have already heard on many occasions, they had heard the Lord teach about praying for one's enemies, about blessing them that curse them, being forgiving. And they just heard that? And, and being gentle with all men. And they had heard him tell them that if someone smote you, oh, wrong cheek, smote you on the left cheek, what are you to do? Turn the right cheek. Um, so they should have been asking for God to send down grace from heaven. Wouldn't that have been a better prayer request? Oh, these poor lost Samaritans. Lord, should we call down grace from heaven? But no, they wanted to call down fire. They seem to have very quickly forgotten all, all, of, all of his teaching in their anger. And all that they wanted right then was immediate vengeance. How quickly we forget the lessons from the word of God, right? In their anger, they had forgotten all his good instruction. And I'm sure, too, that their ingrained hatred of the Samaritans had a lot to do with their suggestion, you know, to wipe out this entire village. I seriously doubt that they would have made this similar suggestion if the city had been full of Jewish men and women and children. What about Nazareth? Nazareth had wanted to push him off the cliff. Did you hear James and John saying, call down fire from heaven and consume the whole town of Nazareth? Mm -mm. There was a lot of prejudice here in this situation. They didn't do that with the Gadarenes even. When the Gadarenes said, leave our coast, we prefer our pig prophets to you. Although it is not God's will for us to approve of corrupt doctrines, and the Samaritans' doctrine was corrupt, And it is not God's will for us to approve of false religions and cults, yet neither is it his will for us, like some religions, it is not his will for us to use the sword of vengeance to suppress them or to get our way. We don't want to win the world for Christianity by blowing ourselves up, being suicide bombers and winning the world for Allah. That's not how we do it through the sword, is it? No way. Now, one day, a fire from heaven will come 
in final judgment to purify the world. But at the present time, the church of Jesus Christ is to deal with the lost in the same manner of spirit which, with which Jesus dealt with them at his first coming, which was in a spirit of love and meekness and acceptance and gentleness, no respecter of persons, non-sectarianism, long-suffering peace. He didn't pray against his enemies. He prayed for his enemies. Now, this same John, who on this, I'm going to just use John, James, James, the other son of thunder, was the first martyr of the church. He must have been something because he's the first one Herod Agrippa went after. He was a big fish to catch. James was the first martyr. Anyway, he, he, was a, he turned out to be a great, great guy. And he's not the same James who wrote the book of James because that was the half-brother of Jesus. But James was a cousin of Jesus from, on his mother's side. But anyway, he was the first one, first one to die, first apostle to, to die. He had a great testimony because he was willing to die for his faith. Great transformation in his life from this. Well, John, I'm going to focus on John. On this occasion, he wanted to call down fire and consume a whole village of of people, the Samaritans. Uh, We've already seen on another occasion that he had forbidden a man who was casting out demons in the Lord's name from doing so. You know, you had the sin of sectarianism. And on yet another occasion with his brother James, he is coveting for the right and left hands seats on uh, uh, when Jesus comes into his kingdom. So John had some problems, didn't he? he that He was rightly called the, the, one of the sons of thunder. But when you come to the book of Acts, chapter 8, you come to an entirely different manner of spirit in John altogether than what we see in... Um, in our lessons that we've been looking at so far on his life. He came to Samaria in a different time with Peter on a very special mission from Jerusalem. And it was to bring spiritual blessings to the Samaritan believers there. And the scripture actually tells us in Acts 8.14 that he prayed for the Samaritans to receive the Holy Spirit. Does that sound like the same John who wanted to just consume them? And even the first John, when they went to the Samaritan village of Sychar, he didn't care about going into town to witness to the people and tell them Jesus was out at the well. He just went in there to get some bread and food and left them. So we see a completely different John. You see, no change of character is too great for God to accomplish if we are simply willing to yield ourselves to him. I'm telling you, I'm not the same Catherine I used to be. I ain't there yet, but I sure am glad I am not what I used to be. So the road to rejection began very, very sadly with the rejection of both the Lord's own siblings and with this uh, group of Samaritans. However, the good news is that on the other side of the resurrection, the scripture does tell us that the brothers of Jesus, and I would assume the sisters also of Jesus, did believe on him. You can read that in Acts 1.14. They did come to believe on him. And it tells us in Acts 8.14 that Samaria received the word of God. Samaria received the word of God. And I'm sure that the Lord's siblings and I'm sure that the Samaritans were all very, very thankful that Jesus did not, not agree to the request from James and John to consume them when they first rejected him but instead that he was patient and he was merciful and he was forgiving until they came to the point of saving faith in him. In conclusion, let me just read one, a couple verses from the book of John so you can see for yourself the change in this one man. This is from John. Um, he wrote, and I believe this is in, I didn't have this down here, but this is in First John. You know, he wrote, John wrote more books of the Bible than any other apostle. No, Paul did. But of the 12, he wrote more books of the Bible than um, any other, the original 12. Anyway, he writes this. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 
Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? In this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. John became known as the apostle of love. That was in 1 John chapter 4, and I did skip around in some of the verses. Isn't it wonderful to know how God can transform a life? Gives us all hope, doesn't it? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for salvation, which is available to anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for the power of the Holy Spirit, which is able to take lives and transform them amazingly, miraculously, into the image of your Son. Thank you for your patience with us, that you do not consume us with fire before we come to the point in our lives where we submit to you as Lord. Thank you, Father, for the Word of God, which tells us how to live, to please, and to glorify you. And thank you for friends, for these Christian friends, many who we have met through this study, our dear sisters in Christ. Thank you for their hunger to know you better. We pray your blessing on each and every one of them, Father. Keep them from the evil one. Keep us all from thinking the way that the world thinks, but to keep our mind set on Christ, to have the mind of Christ. For we pray, Jesus, in your blessed name. Amen.